Thank you so much that you are the God of second chances. Thank you that you are the God who makes all things new. Thank you that you are the God who loves us and that you are the God who came to rescue us. God, thank you for the stories like those of Wayne, of the amazing things that you do and the amazing way that your love never fails. And God, as we look at this whole topic of homosexuality and gay marriage, I pray that you would give, give us your attitude to it all. God, I pray that you would help me to speak with wise words and your gentleness and your love and your truth. I pray that in this place this morning, uh, truth and love would, would meet. Father, I pray that you would help us to be open to your truth and to be open to your character this morning. Speak to us and challenge us how we live as your people in this world. Holy Spirit, Father, send your Holy Spirit to to speak powerfully into our hearts today. We thank you that he is here with us. Help him to keep our eyes on your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You might have noticed that this issue of same-sex marriage is a little bit on the agenda at the moment. Some of you have probably got an envelope at home. Has everyone got their envelope at home? I was speaking to some people the other day and they haven't got theirs yet, which is quite interesting. Um, and the problem is, is that us Christians have a bit of a reputation. Us Christians have a bit of a reputation, whether earned or not, of being homophobic haters and bigots. And there are many gay people who would shirk from stepping foot into a church. And there are many people who have family who are gay or who are gay themselves who wouldn't dare mention it amongst a bunch of Christians for fear of how we would react. And it's not entirely fair that we have this reputation, but, but I still want to suggest that it is a reputation that we as a church corporate have built up for ourselves. And that saddens me because, because when we look at Jesus in the Bible, he had a, well, he, he had a very different reputation. Actually, he did have a bad reputation. Jesus had a bad reputation among the churchy people because Jesus hung out with all the people that the churchy people thought he shouldn't hang out with. Jesus hung out with all the religious failures of his day. And he went to them and he said, Come, follow me. Be my apprentices. Be my disciples. Let me lead you along the way of life. Set aside your old life. Follow me. God's kingdom is near. And many of them did. And and many lives were healed and forgiven and transformed and made new. And it's amazing what Jesus did. There's a a story. I don't know if we've got it on the screen here. Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 3 to 5. 
Um, it's a well-known story that Jesus tells to the Pharisees about uh, uh, judging others. And it's a story of when you've got a log in your own eye, and you notice the poor fellow in front of you has got a little speck in your eye, Jesus said, for goodness sake, deal with the log in your own eye before you deal with the speck in your brother or sister's eye. And notice Jesus doesn't say, don't deal with the speck. If there's a speck, it's got to be dealt with. But it's really difficult to deal with a speck in somebody else's eye if you've got a whacking great two-by-four sticking out of yours. This morning, uh, we want to have a look at, at what the Christian response, and in fact what the Jesus response, uh, should be to people who identify as gay and to this whole question of same-sex marriage. Um, I hope that the message that comes clearest today is a really, really simple one. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God loves you and wants the best for your life. If that's all that you take home from today, you can switch off now if you want, because that's, that's the message I want you to take home. Don't switch off, because there's more to come. But that's the important thing. So we start off, we say, well, what does the Bible actually say about homosexuality? Now, listening to some Christians, you'd imagine that every second page has got some words on this, but actually there's very few references to it in the Bible. In the Old Testament, only a few different occurrences. Can we throw up Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, the most well-known one? Do not practice homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman. It is a detestable sin. Now, you've got to also remember uh, Old Testament times, very uh, male-centric. The women don't even get mentioned, but let's assume um, lesbians are included in this. Uh, the other one in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, if a man practices homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman, both men have committed a detestable act. They must both be put to death, for they are guilty of a capital offense. But if you've got your Bibles, you might notice, if we open up to Leviticus chapter 20, that this injunction against homosexual practice is in a whole long list of injunctions against other sexual malpractices. Having sex with a daughter-in-law, having sex with one of his father's wives, committing adultery with a neighbor's wife, having sex with an animal, um, marrying your sister, either of your father or your mother. Um, the list goes on. And homosexuality isn't the only sexual sin which, when practiced, comes with a death penalty in the Old Testament. Quite a few of them do. And I want to say to you right from the start, we can take a verse out of context and go, see how terrible that is, but, but you've got to look that, that homosexual practice is not taken and singled out as being more wicked than anything else. It's just in a list of things. And by the way, we are New Testament people with, with a Savior who comes and says, no matter what, I have already taken the death penalty for you. 
That's good news. The other one that you might know from the Old Testament is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis, I think, chapter 19. Um, the story here, God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, send some angels, they go to Lot's house, and Lot welcomes them in. That night, the men of the town are outside knocking on the door saying, send out your visitors so that we can have sex with them. And Lot, it's a terrible story, he throws out his daughters to the men instead, and they, they have their way. It's, it's, uh, actually, no, he offers to throw his daughters out. I'm confusing my Old Testament stories. The angels rescue the family. The city is destroyed. And people look at that and go, see, see, see? They were destroyed because they were homosexuals. But actually, well, yes, there's, there's some element of truth that there was sexual perversion in that city. Jude, uh, verse 7, says that they were filled with, with uh, every uh, kind of sexual perversion. Sodom and Gomorrah, their neighboring towns, filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. But that's not the main problem at Sodom and Gomorrah. Have a look at what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel uh, chapter 16, verses 49 to 50. It says, Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness, while the poor and needy suffered outside her door. She was proud and committed detestable sins, so I wiped her out as you have seen." Do you notice what's happened there? Old Testament, Ezekiel, looking back at Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, what's the problem? Why were they wiped out? Well, they were proud and they were arrogant and they were, were gluttonous and they were lazy. Mm, I can think of a few other cities that might get wiped out. <laughs> the sin that God judged might have included sexual perversion, but it was bigger than that. God didn't wipe them out simply because they were gay. Interestingly, if you read through the Bible, you will notice that at no point does the Bible speak about one's sexual orientation. But it does address the things that one does. It speaks about inappropriate or appropriate sexual expression. Really, that's, that's pretty much it for homosexuality in the Old Testament. Believe it or not. Go to the New Testament. There's a few verses, uh, 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, and Romans. And the famous one there that we're going to look at today is Romans chapter 1, verse uh, 18 onwards. Why don't we just read that together? Romans chapter 1, verse 18. In fact, I'll, I'll go back a little bit to verse 16. I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the good news. It is the power of God at work. It saves everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. It's accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. And through everything that God has made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. 
Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshipping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshipped idols and made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. And so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the woman turned against their natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of their sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. And since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior and gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises. They're heartless, have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do such things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. In uh, the days when Paul was writing, Greek culture, which is kind of what the Romans adopted, uh, in Greek culture, homosexuality was, was accepted and normal. It was quite appropriate um, to have sexual, homosexual relationships, especially between men, even children, both for recreation and in terms of worshipping one's God with a temple prostitute. That, that's Greek-Roman culture. Jewish culture, on the other hand, coming out of the Old Testament, says, no, that's not what we do as God's people. Uh, it, it condemned homosexual acts. And, and here in Romans chapter 1, Paul is starting to lay out his case uh, for the Romans as to why we need Jesus to save us. Uh, he speaks about how the universe gives hints of, of how amazing God is, of, of how God exists and is powerful. And, and then he says how people, uh, that we've, we've got hints as to God. We've got this natural revelation, but, but instead of searching for God, we say, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to search away from God. I'm going to serve the things that God made instead of, instead of the one who made them. And, and Paul says, in, God, because of that, hands humanity over to do what they want. And he uses as an example, an illustration of the consequence of this, the, the example of homosexuality. And again, if we look carefully at Paul's argument here, homosexuality isn't the cause of God's anger against humanity. Let me say that again. God doesn't get angry at humanity because they're gay. Homosexual actions are one of the effects of God's wrath, of God's anger, of God handing us over to our own ways. And I think Paul uses 
homosexuality as an illustration of, of the results of humanity's rebellion against God for because, because he looks at what God has done and it just so obviously goes against God's created order. Remember, Paul is speaking from a look you should be able to see from creation who God is, what he's done, something of him. And he looks at homosexuality and says, here's a great illustration of where we've fallen. God made humanity to be his image bearers. Let us create man in the image of God. God created them. Male and female, he created them. Uh, the, 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 the coming together of man and a woman shows something of God's character. Two different entities which in marriage become one and yet are still two but are one. And, and you know something about God. We, we know that God is Father, Son, Spirit. Three and yet one, and yet three, and yet one, and, and it's, it's a mystery how that works, but quite frankly, it's a mystery how marriage works like that as well. Two different entities, different persons, different genders coming together, and yet being one. And also, uh, you look at that, uh, God is the one who created the world. God is the one who created everything. And when you have a man and a woman coming together, they have the capacity to create life in imitation of God. And I think one of the reasons Paul chooses to use homosexual actions as an illustration of the effects of God's judgment against fallen humanity is that, is that it is obviously against God's intent. Now, I know that there will be some people who, who take issue with that, but from a biblical perspective, that's what we have to say. Paul wants us to see that the world is not the way God made it to be. And here is just one perfect illustration of that. And there's another reason, I think, why Paul chooses to use homosexual actions as an illustration of how the world has fallen further and further away from God. Paul wants to use that as an illustration because he knew that there would be many of the religious people, the Jews of the day, starting his argument to the Jews, who would be standing in the stands going, Yeah! Yeah! Kill them all! They're horrible! That's a bit loud, isn't it? Paul knew that his Jewish contemporaries would be standing up going, you're right, despicable, horrible people. But notice again that Paul doesn't isolate homosexual acts as the cause of all wrong and sin in the world. He also speaks about other examples, other illustrations of how the world is fallen and broken, about evil, wickedness, greed, murder, arguing, cheating, gossiping, being cruel, hating your parents, thinking up new ways to do wrong things. It's like he uses the big example and he says, let me throw some more examples in case I haven't offended everyone yet. When people who don't know God act in this way, in any of these ways, 
it shouldn't surprise us. Because all of these things, whether it's gossiping or committing a homosexual act, are contrary to the will of God. And God, in judgment, has said, if you want nothing of me, then go your own way. See, Paul's playing with us. He wants us to be sitting here as goody-two-shoes Christians going, oh, well, what a bad list of people. Oh, if only they were here. I'd look down my nose at them because, you know, so much better than they are. Oh, no, no, Nick, we would never do that. Well, if we as a church would never do that, why are there so many people who would never put their noses into a church? Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. You may think that you can condemn such people. You're just as bad. You've no excuse. When you say they're wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself or you who judge others do these very same things and We know that God, in his justice, will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think that you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you away from your sin? Paul says, for goodness sake, none of you are any better. None of you have the right to hold placards and, and, and some churches in America, God hates fags. Paul says, how dare you? How dare you do that? Don't you realize how much God has forgiven you? How very dare you? Romans 3.23, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. And God's been kind to us. We're sitting here not because we're better than the people aren't, who aren't here this morning. We're sitting here because God's been kind to us. And, and God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, to recognize our own fallenness, to, to turning back to God for a new start. Everyone is broken. Everyone is broken. And we can all find forgiveness and grace and a new start in Jesus. That's why I loved your story, Wayne, because it's a story of God saying, you can start again. And all of us are broken. Like it or not, we're all sexually broken as well. If you're sitting there going, no, I'm not, keep believing that if you can. But you are. Our sexual orientation simply defines where our sexual temptation will be. I, like you, live with daily temptations to inappropriate sexual expression. The room's gone very quiet, hasn't it? (laughs) Be honest with yourself. If you are a heterosexual man or woman, your temptations to lust, to do whatever 
is no better for being heterosexual than the temptations of a homosexual orientated person. No better. Any temptation which pulls us away from what God desires for us is equally destructive and equally in need of submission to Jesus as Lord and King. Whether you are gay or straight or whatever, I don't care. Jesus doesn't care. Well, he cares because he wants you to be the person that he made you to be. But, but what Jesus cares about is what you do with your temptations. What Jesus cares about is whether you come to him and say, I want you to be king of my life. I want to live my life the way that you intend for me to live it. And by the way, it is not wrong to say, God, make me the man or the woman that you want me to be. And you know, God answers those prayers. He does. He absolutely does. People who were gay can become straight. Does that mean that everyone who prays that prayer, God changes? We pray for people to be healed all the time. And sometimes God does an amazing miracle and people are healed. And sometimes they're not. Sometimes God wants them to trust him through it. At Golden Bay Baptist, we're big on saying that we are a church full of broken people. If you're broken, you're welcome. If you're looking for a church with a perfect pastor, find somewhere else. If you're looking for a church with perfect elders and deacons, you're out of luck here. If you're looking for a church where you can sit next to someone whose life is so godly, it's like they've got this beautiful glow around them. There's a few people like that here, but I hate to break it to you. They're not perfect. We are broken people, but we are also a church that says we are broken people saved by grace. Regardless of where your temptations lie, you are welcome here. Regardless of where your sexual desires lie, you are welcomed by Jesus and you are welcomed by us. Can I carry on a little bit? I I don't want to stop there. It's It's an important question, this one I've got here. Can you be a gay Christian? One Corinthians chapter six. Ugh, gone too far. One Corinthians chapter six, verse twelve. Paul says, "You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything's good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything." You say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. It's true, though. Someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for, the, uh, for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord. And the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. 
Your body is a part of Christ. Should you take your body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? No way. Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin, says Paul. A little bit further on, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself. God bought you with a high price. You must honor God with your body. Yes, Christians might say, I can do anything. I trust Jesus to forgive me so I can do whatever I like. Says Paul, maybe so, but, but is it good for you? Has, has it got you ensnared and caught says, Paul, if you're a Christian, then your body, like all of you, belongs to God, and God lives in you, and God calls you to use your body to serve Him, not to serve your broken desires, which, as we've just said, we all have. Is that a burden for someone who is gay? To say you're not allowed to, to sexually express yourself as a gay-orientated person. Is that a burden to them? Yes, it's a burden. Of course it's a burden. You're saying to them, you're not allowed to satisfy that desire. You're not allowed to enjoy the love of another person. You're saying, don't, don't let yourself be drawn in to, to those depths. But is it a burden to a, to a straight Christian who is single? I want to suggest to you today that, that what Paul writes about human sexuality is a burden to every single person. Paul says that we are, in, in another book, that we are to offer our bodies to God as living sacrifices. We are to say, God, what you want, not what I want. For gay couples, their relationship can offer companionship, comfort, love, and pleasure. And the question to ask ourselves, whether you're gay or straight or whatever, is simply this, how valuable is Jesus to me? Have a look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. If it's there, oh, if it's not there, then I'll just read it for us. Matthew, chapter 10, verse 37. Sorry, Wayne. Jesus says, if you love your father or your mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or your daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Father, mother, son, daughter. Jesus is saying that if you, if you love the people that give your life meaning more than you love me, if you love the ones that, that love you, that just comfort you and encourage you, if you love the ones that are most important to you more than you love me, 
You're not worthy of me. And following me means taking up your cross. It means saying, I'm, I'm not going to do what goes against what God wants. And it looks and feels like losing your life. It feels like losing your life. But Jesus' promise is, is that if you do that, if you follow him, you're going to lose, but what you gain is so much more. So, just hands up. Can you be a Christian who is gay? Yes? No? I have no idea. <laughs> let, me, let me ask a different question. Can you be a Christian who is a racist? Can you be a Christian who is a gossip? Can you be a Christian who disobeys their parents? We've got morning tea afterwards. Can you be a greedy Christian? Can you be a Christian who struggles with lust? Yes. You can be a Christian who has sexual attractions for, that, that fall out of God's plan. You can. And like every other temptation to do wrong, people can still stumble and fall sometimes. But like every other sin, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And Hebrews, we have Jesus, our great high priest, standing next to the Father, seated next to him going, but I died for them. Does that mean that we can act out against God? No. You see, if we are Jesus's, he calls us to obey him. He forgives us when we fail, but, but he says, set your heart on me. How does God feel about gay people? Anyone? Died for them. He loves them. You, you guys are quiet this morning. He loves them. Like he loves us. And, and that's why it saddens me so much that you go into the world today, you put on the TV, and what do you hear? God hates gay people. And Christians hate gay people. Because the voice that people in our world have heard the loudest from us, the church, is that God doesn't like you. God doesn't like you. God doesn't want anything to do with you. We're so good at saying this is wrong that we forget to actually say God loves you. And there's a story in uh, John chapter 8. Uh, it's one of those stories that it isn't in the earliest copies of the manuscripts that we've got, but, but I think it tells us a little bit about Jesus. And, and I, like, I like what he does here. Here we have a woman caught in the act of adultery. And you've got some peeping toms amongst the, the leadership who've caught her and they've dragged her out. I don't know what they did with the man. They left him somewhere. They've dragged her out in public. 
She's probably not very clothed at this stage. She's ashamed. And they drag her and they throw her in the dust. And they form the circle. You know the schoolyard bully kind of thing where you get the circle around. And there's Jesus over there. And they say, Jesus, look, look, look. We caught her, Jesus. She deserves to die, doesn't she? Yeah, you know the law. She deserves to die because she's a sexual sinner. And Jesus is just there and he's writing in the sand. And all that Jesus says to the angry church, to the, to the equivalent of the media of the day who look at them and go, yeah, oh, they hate people like that. Jesus looks at them eventually and quietly says, yeah, you're right. She's done the wrong thing. Tell you what, um, those of you who, who never have, you, you pick up the first stone, you go for it. Jesus doesn't back away from what's right or wrong. The story is, all of them slowly slink away and Jesus looks up and says, where are your accusers? And she says, well, they've gone. They haven't condemned me. And Jesus looks at her and says, and neither do I. Go. And sin no more. Do you notice the order of what has happened there? It's not you're pathetic and in need of forgiveness. It's love. Followed by the little word of Sin no more. What is the loudest voice of God? It's, it's love. It's mercy. God said in the Old Testament that he makes, he makes his judgment or he makes his mercy stand for thousands upon thousands of generations. The effects of his mercy, of his kindness, but his judgment to two or three. Two or three generations. Forget the actual thousands of the numbers there. The point is God's mercy out-trumps his judgment every time. If you want to know what sort of a God God is, yes, he's a God of judgment and justice, but his mercy is a far bigger component to his character. What's the takeaway from this encounter with the woman? Did everyone go home saying, well, Jesus hates adulterers? Did that woman go, well, I'll never go to his service. I want nothing to do with him. Or did she go, why did he love me? Why, why, he, he could have killed me. Why? Now, how do we respond to same-sex marriage? The Bible's pretty clear. Marriage is between a man and a woman. As, as a church, we're not going to back away from that. We're going to hold on to that because that's what the Bible teaches. That's what God says. And, and by the way, even if this plebiscite goes through for same-sex marriage and they put it through Parliament and the law changes, and, and my, my opinion is I'm going to put my vote in, I'm going to say I want things to stay as they are, 
But based on Romans, I am convinced that if Jesus doesn't come first, our country will have same-sex marriage in the next few years. We're a world, we're a country where God is rejected, and the Bible says where you reject God, people will just go their own way. But here's the thing, even if the law says same-sex marriage is legal, that doesn't mean that it's right. The law says many things are legal which are not right. Committing adultery is legal, but it's not right. Divorce is legal, but most of the time it's not right. Smoking's legal, but it's not right. But here's the thing, buying into God's act. Sorry, Debbie, you know how I think, though. See, buying into what God says is right or wrong when it comes to marriage is an act of faith. It's an act of trust. And if there's one thing I know, imposing morality on people by act of law, by act of parliament, does not work. Paul in Romans has that wonderful chapter where he says, all that the law does is make you aware that you're a lawbreaker. Didn't know what it meant to covet until somebody said, don't covet. And then all of a sudden I was like, ooh, that looks nice. Law has no power to change our hearts. Legislating morality never works. You see, we don't want to be, have people who act more Christian. Because then we'll have nice acting people who go to hell. Who in their hearts, as soon as they can, will sin. We can't demand that people who reject Jesus live the way Jesus calls them to live. Yes, we are meant to be salt and light to the world, but salt's fantastic, but for goodness sake, have you ever tried like swallowing a tablespoon of salt? And unfortunately, we've got a reputation in the world of saying, have some more salt. Don't stop the salt, but for goodness sake, douse it with some love. And it does, and it does, but there are good reasons to oppose same-sex marriage. I'm not going to go into them. Unintended consequences, safe schools, all of those things, but it will become a reality in Australia, I believe, at some point. And I want to suggest that as Christians we shouldn't be throwing all of our energy into fighting same-sex marriage. Have our say. But we shouldn't be throwing all of our energy into fighting it. We need to be throwing our energy into doing what Jesus did. Jesus didn't go around in his day starting petitions and waving banners about tax collectors and prostitutes and adulterers. Jesus went around hanging out with them, loving them, sharing with them the good news that God's kingdom was there, and yes, calling them and saying, be my apprentices, follow me, give up on those things where you think you find life, and come to me and find life. Jesus didn't finish His work on earth here, Matthew chapter 28, when he sent out his disciples and he said to them, 
go into the world and make people who act like disciples. Or go into the world and make people know how evil they are. Jesus said two things. A little bit earlier he said, people will know that you're my followers by your love for each other and and I think for, for the world outside. And Jesus said right at the end, go into the world and make disciples. Keeping the laws as they are in Australia here will be a good thing. It's a right thing. But it's not going to change anything. See, what Australia needs is not more morals, is not better laws. What Australia needs is Jesus. And we have no right, no right to say anything to anyone about this topic if we don't love them first. If you don't love someone who is struggling with whatever sin, you have no right to speak into their life. And I can speak from experience. I've done it, I'm sure. When you speak without love, all that you do is push someone away. And we don't fix anything. It's a complex issue. Maybe instead of being known for our opposition, we should be known for our love. At the moment, our biggest voice is you're wrong and our smallest voice is, but God loves you. Wouldn't it be nice if our biggest voice was, God loves you. And he calls you to sacrifice everything for him. Because he has better for you than you can imagine. I don't care whether you're gay, whether you're transgender, whether you're straight, whether you're whatever. God loves you and has better for you. I long for our church to be a safe place for anyone. We have gay people who come to our church. And that's wonderful. And we as a church will always welcome them. We'll always say, hey, God wants more for you. And we'll say, if you keep saying, I will not bow to God, you're saying you won't bow to God. But in this church, we say, come, Jesus is the best option going. Won't you trust him? It's not easy. We're not better than you. We're all in the same boat. Amen.